Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That with Dave Moore, who's on at Dave Today FM. I'm at at Neil Delibert Comedy on Instagram, and the podcast is at Why Would You Tell Me That. Uh, we are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. Get in touch if you want us to look into something, and that's what people have been doing lately. I wowed Dave last week with my amazing facts, and it is <laughs> his turn to wow me this week. David. Over to you. Sometimes we get really specific on something, you know, like yeah. I'm going to tell you about this one guy who did a very specific thing and it was like, oh my God, whatever. I don't think we can get broader than the history of sleep. Okay. That's, yeah. that's, that's pretty general. Yeah. We're going for the tabloid mass market. I like it. <laughs> it is utterly fascinating. The way sleep has developed over our, our human history. And particularly there's something about the middle ages that we'll get into in part two, which is going to be amazing. We're going to be joined by Jill Varnstein. And Jill is a journalist, a certified sleep coach, and the editor of a website called Sleep Advisor, which if you're struggling with your sleep, you know, obviously, usually you listen to why would you tell me that? And that would send you off into the land and nod. <laughs> get my joke there. Uh, but Jill's website will definitely help you do that as well. But we'll get to that in part two. But in part one, Neil, yes, I wanted to look at something around the world of sleep. But I didn't want to kind of, you know, tread on Jill's toes and kind of get into any of her world. Okay. So I figured I'd take it out of the world of humans and I'd go into the animals that are awake while we're asleep. The nocturnal animals. Spot on, my friend. Or the crepuscular animals. So crepuscular, interestingly, do you know what the definition of crepuscular is in... Sorry, I'll add the word rays. Do you know crepuscular rays? Uh, I thought they were... Are they as in rays of the sun? Yes. Uh, dawn and dusk, is it? So in, I suppose in and around that time, the when the sun... You know when the sun has actual kind of broken up rays that are coming out narrow from the sun and gradually by the time they hit earth they're kind of wider that i suppose traditional picture of the sun with the rays coming out of it yeah they are crepuscular rays and yes crepuscular is dawn and dusk so not quite always coming out and being awake and being active and hunting and mating doing those things at night but certainly doing it as the sun is either rising or setting or the crepuscular foxes. animals yes precisely what i'm amazed by urban foxes is is how have they evolved that they know that the street lights were going to be orange. <laughs> how did how did they know that, Dave? <laughs> it's just an incredible twist and, of, it's of unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, engineering by the nature fox. is amazing. <laughs> like, our, our, well, if we keep if if we eventually start using white street lights, well, we are now. No, no, we are. We we've moved away. All the soft yellow ones are going, and they're being replaced by these bright white LEDs because right, it's better right. for safety. It's better for you know shite for visibility. Fox, shite for foxes. Yeah. So will we get eventually white foxes like? Like Arctic foxes. Yeah, one of my favourite animals in the world is the Arctic fox. I love urban foxes. I've said this before. See, rural foxes are all shy. Whereas yeah. urban foxes are like, don't mind me, I'm just going through your bins. I'm just... Uh... If you ever walk past an urban fox, he's not getting out of the way. Like, no. Yeah. But get back to crepuscular then. Sorry, Sorry no, we're moving you. on. We're moving straight away from the crepuscular and into the nocturnal. Okay. Because I didn't realise some of the animals I'm going to tell you about today until I started researching are actually nocturnal. For example, the aardvark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Double A, like one of the best animals, because obviously it's at the start of every list. You know, double A, aardvark. Found in the southern kind of two thirds of the African continent. Its name actually, aardvark, actually means ground pig or earth pig 
And the reason why it's called an earth pig is because it is one of the best burrowers ever. I did not know this, but it can dig two feet of earth out in 15 seconds. What? Yeah. Why are we using real drills? (laughs) Why don't we just have an aardvark at the end of a handle? Yes. How did the port tunnel go over budget? Did we know about the aardvark? We investigate aardvark digging. We did not. Typical Ireland. Well, I assume it depends on the the consistency of the earth. Sure. He's not going through concrete. He's not going through concrete. Is it the hardest? Just this aardvark who's the psycho aardvark. (laughs) Headbutts a wall, headbutts the ground and then goes straight through. Two feet in 15 seconds. Yes, they're crazy. And when I tell you who they're related to. Are they related to POW camp people? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I see. I just think where you're going. Yeah, 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 yeah. The digging and everything. No. Like from an animal classification point of view, right? Yeah. This is what freaked me out. They're related to hyraxes. Okay. I had to look up what that was. It's a Toyota. <laughs> it's the pickup truck, isn't it? Small, small mammals, things like marmosets. If you've ever seen one of them, like they're okay. the only thing I could find in a hyrax that I'd ever heard of. But they're like small mammals, hairy mammals, whatever. But they are related to elephants and manatees. They're all in the same animal classification. Elephants, manatees, and aardvarks. So, pachyderms is yes, an elephant, isn't it? Elephants, yeah. A sea cow is a manatee. There you go. And then marmosets and yep. these lads, and the best, best diggers in the history. Okay, we should start a campaign. I think this is powerful enough as, as a podcast. Right. That now, in Chile, or Chile, if you are a miner, you underground always bring... An aardvark, <laughs> right? And or there's an aardvark in case of gla- in case of emergency. <laughs> you have a little hammer and you break this, and his aardvark comes out. Because if you can tunnel down, Dave, you can tunnel up. He can't. They're big boys, though. Like they're not they? small animals. Yeah, like they're they can weigh up to like eighty kilos. Like they're what? yeah, they're big. Like they're not for messing around. These aardvarks, like like you wouldn't money in their way. And the thing is, they they are often confused with anteaters. They're not actually related to anteaters, but they do eat ants. And they also have the kind of long snout and the long tongue. Their tongue, Neil, would you believe, is even bigger than mine? No. Honest to God, 12 inches. Okay. What do they eat? Termites? They eat ants. Yeah, ants and termites. Okay. So what they'll do is they will dig down, as they do, into the underground termites and, and ants' uh, kingdoms. They will then lick the ants out with their tongue and the ants will stick to their tongues and then they slobber them back into themselves. But here's something for you, Neil. Yeah. Aardvarks don't chew. Okay. So <laughs> they they suck the ants down. Okay. And then a muscular area of their stomach does the breakdown of the food, not their mouths. Wow. Isn't that like, um, is it crocodilians that they eat gravel? And birds, some birds do as well. Yeah. I'm just trying to gloss over the fact that you said they lick the ants out. <laughs> yeah, I was, Neil, I was hoping you were going to be mature enough. At this point in the podcast... I hope, you know, when we mention words like pachyderm, you know, when we're talking about animal classification, no. I said lick the ants out of the mound. (laughs) That makes it worse. (laughs) No, it doesn't. It only makes it worse if you're an absolute child. Yes. Like a 16-year-old with a dirty magazine in the back of class. Would you just grow up? (laughs) Okay, okay, we'll, we'll end we'll end aardvarks with one question. What do aardvarks never do? Um, get royalties from the Pink Panther films? Oh my God, how did you know? That was an anteater. All they wanted was one lousy ant sandwich. <laughs> I was wondering when you were going to do the voice. Very good. Is it sleep? Nope, they do uh, sleep. What do they never do? Well, I suppose never is unfair. Hardly Drive. ever. Drive. <laughs> no, I mean that you Codes. would expect an aardvark Codes. to do, Neil. Buy anything from the Middle Island Little. No, what they hardly ever do. Okay, and but you would expect them to you do. You would expect expect every animal to do it, and you're going, hang on, what? Lick a battery. <laughs> <laughs> we we both start with the same two letters. <laughs> no, I just felt that we had something in common. No. Um, I don't know. What aardvarks hardly ever do is drink water. Oh, okay. So they get their moisture from the insects that they consume. Yeah. So they don't actually need to go to find water at any point in their life. I'm not saying they don't drink or they won't drink, but they do not need to. They get enough 
moisture, enough liquid into their bodies through the ants and termites they eat. That's kind of amazing. And yeah. do they only eat ants? They don't eat anything else? Well, ants, termites, they're insectivores. Yeah. Okay, but would they, they wouldn't pose any threat to a human. No, because they would, well, other than if they sat on you. You know, and stopped, right. and stopped you breathing, I suppose. Right. But like, okay. yeah, and sorry, I mean, like, 80 is obviously the upper limit of a size of an aardvark, but. Uh, and they are nocturnal animals. Nocturnal, as is, Neil, the have you ever heard of this animal? The II, as in II uh, captain. Like, uh, no. That's what it's called, AYE hyphen AYE. It's found in Madagascar, it's a primate. Are you doing these alphabetically? This is going to take ages. No, I'm not alphabetically, but okay. I did. I did find a list, so I began to find the interesting ones alphabetically. But I suppose it doesn't matter whether they're alphabetical or not. But okay, the II yeah is a primate. They're a lemur, effectively, right? Mm. But they have an adaptation that makes them unique in that world, but not unique in the world. They share a characteristic with a woodpecker. Okay, are you only doing cartoons? <laughs> These are the ones that spoke to me, so yeah, maybe. So, it, it, uh, is it a, a reinforced skull or something? No, which, yes, the woodpecker has because it pecks at the wood, obviously the tree. The tree is rock solid and it needs to sh- yeah. kind of shelter its brain uh, from the impact. No, it is the ability to use echolocation and find the insects within the tree. No. Then what it does is it has, on its, it's really weird looking, it has five fingers Right. Yeah. And one of them, the middle finger, the as my as my children not to call, like to call it the F finger is what they call it. Right. <laughs> Andrew told me to F off using the F finger is what they call it. That is really skinny and really long, like twice as long as the other fingers. So what they do is they echolocate the insects. They peel off the bark. They smash open the tree, and then they use their extremely long finger with a sharp nail at the end to go in and dig out the grubs, like a scoop. Yeah, but but but, but skinny the scoop, f- flipping the bird finger, flipping the bird finger. Yeah, wow. Another interesting thing about eyes is they look the reverse of what you expect them to in terms of age. When they're born and when they're young, they have they're mostly grey, and as they get older, they go black haired and brown haired. No way. So, when, so if you see a black haired eye, it's like, oh, that's a really old one. If you see a silver haired one, you're like, oh, that's a really young one. Wow. Okay. So. In my head, they they look like Rudy Giuliani. In that <laughs> they're driving a taxi in New York, giving people the massive finger, and going from grey to black, to black as they get older. <laughs> oh, okay. They also are one of the few animals. This is so brilliant that have been documented picking their own noses and eating it. Oh God! Like seriously. Well, you can't have a laugh at licking out ants and then not <laughs> laugh at nose picking, Neil. You can't pick and choose your childishness. I, ca- I, I can pick and choose. I mean, that is that is the joy of living in a democratic society. <laughs> I'm not. It's not that I, I'm kind of more worried that if you have a middle finger that's three feet long, you're not picking out your nose as as much as smashing the amygdala part of the back of your brain by well, accident. I'm going to hazard a guess that they don't use that one. I could be wrong. Maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> one of them did, did it once. And it's, how's Tony looking? Well, he's got a bit glassy-eyed. Tony's just sitting there <laughs> with his middle finger coming out his ear. I don't know if I've done this right. <laughs> oh, man. You know some people who need to scratch their palate? Have you ever? My wife is one of these people where she kind of puts her finger in her ear and wiggles it and at the same time does something with her tongue and her palate and goes ding, 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 ding. And like, how, how I'm still married to her I don't know but... Oh I really wish somebody had seen his impression there that... <laughs> I did a podcast the other day with a sex coach and she was saying do you know where the G spot is to the audience and they said right. no and she says but if you put your tongue in your mouth and put it back towards the back you'll feel uh, your mouth get rougher in the ridges Mm. Right, and we, uh, the audience said, "Yeah," and she goes, "Well, it's the same place in the vagina." Oh, right. And I was like, "I need a different dentist." That's <laughs> what I. Need. <laughs> well, that's a charming impression of your yeah. wife. Yeah, well, I hope she doesn't hear. Who's not nocturnal? She is a normal diurnal. She very much is. Yes, yes. Okay, let's move on to Neil. Have you ever heard of? Because we we've done frogs on this yes. podcast before. Have you ever heard of the paradoxical frog? <laughs> Like, I'm not joking. This is what it's actually called. Like, the names animals have are like are insane. The paradoxical frog is a real thing. No. Okay. Is it something that shouldn't be a frog? Sounds like it shouldn't be a frog. 
No. The... Is it the frog that if you kiss a prince, it turns into... Oh, I want to know what the paradox is. <laughs> it turns into some kind of uh, wheeled wagon that brings you to the ball. No. The paradoxical frog yeah. is the world's largest tadpole. Okay. 20, 27 centimeters, Neil. Mother of God. Nearly yeah. the size of a school ruler. Yeah. And then when the tadpole becomes the frog, between three and seven centimeters. It gets smaller. Adults smaller than young. Wow. That is quality. Isn't that it? Is. That is a good good fact to bring away. Also nocturnal, obviously. Now, civets. I don't even heard about civets before, right? Civets are... You do it in school. You learn how <laughs> politics works in the PRS TV system. No, I, no. I know what it is. It's a Honda. A civet, yeah, Honda civet, yeah. No, a civet is a small little mammal. Uh, they're found all over the world, but actually the ones in Vietnam and Philippines are the ones that are famous. The reason <sighs> is, you've, yeah, you're, you're inhaling. Oh. I think you've, you remember this. They eat things called coffee cherries. Yes. And coffee cherries are uh, the coffee bean, effectively, uh, like of, the, of that area. But it has a fleshy, you know, fruity bit around it, which they call a cherry, even though it's not actually a cherry. But they eat them and the flesh dissolves, but they pass the pits out. Mm. And somebody at some point decided, you know what we should do? We should harvest the pits that have gone through the civet Get those yeah. coffee beans. Yeah. Make coffee that costs, and this is not a joke, $1,200 a kilo. For a civet pit shit. For a what? Civet pit shit. Civet shit pits. Civet pit shits. Yes, shit pits. Shit pits. Yeah, yeah. Mother of God. $100 a cup is the usual price you will pay for civet coffee around the world. Uh, Standard it, it, prices. It will be cheaper to train the civet to sit over your coffee and just <laughs> well, no, because he doesn't produce the coffee; he just dissolves the flesh of the bean. And could we do kind of a a, a version of that, a discount German supermarket version of that? Like, could we train a mink to, to do that, or a pine martin, or something like this, or, or, a, or a gray squirrel? I don't know. Or a uh, ferret. We could. Uh, could we make money? Is my question. You could go and try all this. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you be. I do not want to dive around in the feces of some small furry animal for coffee beans. You would for a hundred quid a cup. This yeah, is maybe, such actually. a this is maybe such a culture thing. Do you know? I just have an idea. In about ten years, you're driving down the N11 and you see Wexford strawberries, Wexford Jew potatoes, and then just me with a gray squirrel on a lead. <laughs> squirrel shit coffee. Listen, I know it sounds weird, but g- give it 20 minutes. <laughs> He's um, the finest barista the forest has ever known. Uh, the final nocturnal animal I want to talk about today is actually an animal that I knew was one of my favorite animals when I saw an incredible YouTube video. Yeah. It was about 15 seconds long. Okay. And it was basically a small creature that looked kind of, it was looking down and it looked up straight into the camera. And mm. its eyes widened in the way that if I'm going to do, I'm going to do it to Neil now, right? So kind of narrow eyes look up and then go and put my eyes as wide as I can, right? Okay, yeah. Now imagine that and it keeps going for 15 seconds, getting <laughs> wider and wider and wider, right? It's called a slow loris. Oh, yeah. And a slow loris, yeah, super cute little mini primate mammal thing. With these incredibly large eyes, because it's nocturnal, because it needs, obviously, to get as much light in as is humanly possible, or mammalianly possible. So at some point, if there's light shining, its eyes are narrow and small, whatever, but they can open to this absolutely enormous size. The cuteness is off the charts, but that's not the coolest thing about the slow loris. The slow loris is one of the few mammals that has a toxic bite. So not so cute anymore. It has a gland on its upper arm that produces a secretion that is at the very least kind of allergy inducing to most animals, but mostly it's toxic to anyone else who goes near it. Of course, it helps for predators. So uh, in tests, when they've taken the secretion, put it on a swab, and they've shown it to things that would traditionally prey on slow lars, they will back away. No so way. So Asian bears, some kind of a leopard, Anything that will usually feed on things like solar arts, because when it smells, this goes, no, I'm not getting involved in that, and backs away. So here's what they do, right? The, the gland is called the brachial gland on their upper arm. And what they will do is, they, it, when they're threatened, they will lick the brachial gland, get the toxin on their mouths, on their lips, yeah. and then bite into the animal. And that puts the toxin from their lips, their mouth, 
into the animal. Is it de- defensive or is it? Oh, completely defensive. It's they're... not to kill other. No, things. no, no. Okay. They, they're, they're on, or they are being omnivores. Yeah, I think they eat mighty insects. So they're like they're going around eating fruit and yeah. leaves and whatever, and, and possibly insects. They're not trying to kill anything else. Yeah. But they only use this in self-defense, and they okay. will literally put this toxin on them. Another interesting thing they do is when they have young and they're they might be leaving them, you know, to go and forage for food, whatever. They will sm- smear the young in the toxin. Right. So it's all over their body. So again, predator can go, ah, oh, no, I'm not going to eat that. That is very good, isn't it? So if you ever attack one, you basically pin its arms. Pin its arms back. As long as pin it its can't arms lick back. its forearms. Like, I, that, that seems to me an amazing evolutionary step, but also a stupid one. Because, Why? Because the poison is amazing, but the method of giving out the poison is, hold on a minute, I just have to lick my own armpit like some sort of weirdo. I have to, I have to get beyond, the, oh, that's, that's oh, I, I've worn too much Lynx Africa, but where do I get through? Wait, I'm going to burn this off. Ow, now we're at it. Licking my own armpit. Is it off both armpits? Do we know? Or is it, or, uh, or I don't it? actually know. No, it's just as, on, on the upper arm. I'm imagining it would be either side. I'm and this is a slow Loris. Uh, okay, Neil, that is part one. They are your nocturnal animals. In part two, we'll be joined by Jill Warrenstein, who will tell us all about the history of sleep. It's on the way. And why would you tell me that? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? Uh, We're now joined by, I'm going to try and pronounce this, hopefully I'll get it right, Jill Zwarenstein. Am I close, Jill? You're close. It's Zwarenstein. Zwarenstein. Okay, I had, to have a, I had to have a go at it first, but Jill is a journalist, a certified sleep coach and editor for Sleep Advisor, which is an amazing website, which I highly recommend everybody checks out. Jill, thank you for joining us all the way from LA and talking to us about the most important thing in the world, sleep. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. 
So I told Neil in the first part of this episode that I would take him through the interesting history of sleep. And by I, I mean you. <laughs> so you'll take us through it. But I, I guess I wanted to start with a question that I have had in my mind for a number of years. And I'm, I hope that you are the person to ask. And I, maybe the answer is really obvious. Like maybe I'm silly. But was sleep invented or is it just a consequence of being alive? Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that it's invented, but more so a necessity. And um, that being said, there are different theories as to why humans need sleep. You know, one of the theories is that it was more of a like survival mechanism, which is the inactivity theory around sleep that you know, when we're uh, at night, you know, back in, you know, thousands of years ago to kind of keep quiet with like predators and things around. Um, so people were inactive. Um, there's also a restorative theory that it's, um, of course, and, and we know this with sleep now that it's restorative for like your muscles, uh, tissue growth, cognitive capabilities so yeah, i wanted to know is there a difference between the neurological rest and the physical rest are, are they are they interlinked in the sense that sleep just covers everything or are there different you know periods in our in our nighttime rest where different things are being restored yeah so um you have uh during sleep you have what's called deep sleep and that's very physically restorative so um that's where you're gonna have like tissue repair and muscle growth it's important for uh, immune health and, and um, with like REM sleep, which is the final stage in a, a sleep cycle, which is also like when we dream and everything, uh, that's important for memory consolidation. Um, right. And there has been, um, you know, th there's two other sleep stages. Those are light sleep, but those two final stages in a sleep cycle are especially important for that. How quickly, Dave is the light and happy, optimistic one. I am the other one, Jill. How quickly do you die if you get no sleep? Oh, that's a good question. So so there is, I guess, an, an example of this, if you will. Um, there's something called fatal familial insomnia. It's a very yes. rare degenerative brain disorder. And it, there's no cure for it, unfortunately. But it's a situation in which there's an abnormal variant in a, a gene. And so it's a genetically passed disorder. And basically people have, they can't sleep. And uh, with that, the life expectancy with that is like anywhere from six months to three years. So I feel like that's probably wow. the, the best gauge with that. And yeah. Because it's genetic, you, you are just born with it. It's not something that can develop in life. It's, it's literally you're, you're born, you're diagnosed, and then your, your death is pretty quick. Yeah, so it's, uh, it is genetically inherited, but based on research, it generally shows up around like age 40 to 60. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. I thought when you said that initially, I thought it was babies that were done. So this is, this comes on to people in life. Yeah. I mean, there, there might be some, you know, emerging research that it shows up, you know, younger, but um, based on my findings, that's kind of the general age of that. But again, it's very rare. Okay, Jill, let's go through the history of sleep. So at what point did we start, I guess, recording you know, sleep or how far back can the research and the studies go into how humans have slept since, I don't know, Neolithic times or something like that? Yeah, I mean, so obviously, like, we, we weren't around in, in those ages, but there there has been research um, uh, with looking at, like, modern day, like, hunter-gatherer groups in, in countries and around the world. And um, uh, interestingly, they found that with these groups, so there, there is kind of a, an idea that, okay, maybe we stay up later because of um, modern technology, right, with, mm. with lights and all that. Um, and there is some, you know, truth to that. But what they found in this research, I believe it was UCLA that, that originally did that research, that these groups went to bed about three hours after dusk, and they, they slept for uh, shorter periods. And so kind of the theory there is that once these groups of people started um, moving, migrating towards Europe with uh, you know, longer nights, that's when you started having more of uh, segmented sleep patterns, which sort of came about more in the 
the Middle Ages there because the longer nights, they, they were used to sleeping shorter periods. So Back in those early, early humanities, so Neolithic or Neanderthal or any of those times, I mean, what were we sleeping on? I mean, I suppose some images you have of like, you know, think back to the Captain Caveman cartoons or whatever. And, you know, he goes into his cave and he lies down on a on a bed-shaped piece of rock, but it's surely no more comfortable than anything else. But were we making mattresses? Were we making pillows? Were those things, you know, part of our sleep history? Yeah, so back then it was, you know, kind of pulling together things like grass or straw or even maybe feathers and things. And um, eventually as societies started to develop more um the beds started being raised off the ground and then you start to get really fancy with bed frames and like medieval times renaissance eras and everything so they were essentially creating like makeshift beds as we developed so did the beds right so the theory that you just you you lie on something comfortable and therefore you are going to sleep better did we always sleep lying down it sounds like a silly question probably is a stupid question but is there any other kind of theories about you know, there's probably somebody in the history of time who said, I'm going to sleep sitting. I'm going to sleep not fully, fully horizontal. The centaurs, I think, were the people who did that, <laughs> weren't they? <laughs> centaurs, just this weird 50-50. Like half of them really wanted to stand up yeah. and half of them really wanted to yeah, lie the, down. I, I can just imagine the human half, like the top half, just like flopping down. Like that thing you do on an airplane when your head just keeps going, your whole half of your body. And the horse legs are going, what are you doing? I'm so 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 that's where that sleep cushion was eventually in <laughs> in Greek mythology. The sleep cushion that goes around your neck on an airplane was invented, Dave. I mean, the stuff we learn in this podcast is absolutely yeah, incredible. incredible. <laughs> so did you always sleep lying down is, is the question. Probably, I, I would imagine. So when you're sleeping, your muscles essentially become paralyzed uh, so that, you know, in most cases, people aren't, you know, you have the conditions of like sleepwalking and things. But in general, people are pretty much out you know with their muscles and things so i mean in general i most people are, are sleeping uh lying down i'm sure there are some people of course the other occasions they maybe they're a lookout and they're sitting against a tree and you know maybe they're just drooped down or something but um yeah i i, I don't know anything about specific societies like formally sleeping up but it could be in those cases where it's like maybe a guard or something <laughs> Yeah, it would have to be a pretty specific set of circumstances to to lead them to yeah. do that, all right. Um, speaking of the mattresses and beds we spoke of there a few minutes ago, like nowadays, right, let, let's fast forward, jump over everything to, to right now. Like do mattresses, bed frames, sheets, pillows and all those things, do they really matter when it comes to quality of sleep today? Yeah, so um, with the, the modern market, um, there's a lot of different options out there for people with the goal being that you want to create a sleep environment that's um, most comfortable for you. So um, it is important in terms of uh, back support and pressure relief to your joints, cooling, um, whether you sleep with a partner. So I would say absolutely, you know, mattress is definitely a number one, but the right pillow sheets, all of that can can have a big impact. It's funny how I suppose popular it's become. I know that sounds ridiculous. Obviously, people have always craved yep. great sleep, but you know, before it certainly was the case here in Ireland that you know you would go to the furniture store that sold you your sofa. They would also sell you your bed, and they would also sell you your mattress and your pillows and whatever. And it was like whatever's available was what you took. But now, you know, certainly since the online thing, you know, you're able to buy any manner of sleep technology to allow you to get this better night's sleep. I mean, is it a little bit like a unicorn? I mean, are we chasing? Something that, sure, we can have an effect on the sleep environment, like our sleep health, as people say. Sleep hygiene. Hygiene, even better, yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, don't look at your phone two hours beforehand and put leave it downstairs and your room should be this and at this temperature, whatever. I mean, maybe this is just me, but, like, I will literally sleep anywhere on anything. Like, my wife will tell you, when we, we have four kids, and when we had the twins, which are our last two, so four kids under five, like, I would come home from work, I'd feed the babies, do whatever, and she turned around and I would literally, as Neil was describing her on, be stood up at the kitchen countertop, like snoring. She's like, stop it. I've been with the kids all day. You have to be awake. And I'm like, OK, but, you know, airplanes, cars, the sofa downstairs, like Elijah Wood, actually, from Lord of the Rings, uh, Frodo from Lord of the Rings. That actor, he's famous for being able to sleep in almost instantly anywhere. And I'm like that. 
Like we can continue this this interview. Are you feel... narcoleptic? No, I'm not. I'm not because <laughs> it's completely voluntary. Like I can literally just go. I'm just going to sleep now, and then I'm, I'll be gone. But there isn't there a test? I, I'm I'm remembering everything that I've ever learned about sleep. Isn't there a test though where you to see if you're in sleep deficit and sleep debt where you lie with a spoon or something and if you hear it hit off the ground? Isn't that some sort of sleep? Jill's looking at me like I've made something up now. Yeah. I haven't heard that one. Um, I mean, there are sleep sleep studies to like diagnose um, disorders and everything, but I, I haven't heard about the a spoon one. And how do you feel about fitness trackers and sleep trackers and things like that? Because, for example, I wear a Whoop, uh, which is a fitness tracker or whatever, and it provides me with literally more data than they had when they flew men to the moon uh, in 1969. And I have no use for it whatsoever because I'm very sedentary. <laughs> but anyway, it tells me all these things and it gives me, you broke down the, the sleep types earlier on and it gives me my REM sleep, my light sleep, my deep sleep. Uh, it gives me a score. It gives me all these things, whatever. I mean, is is any of that like important or do we just find ourselves competing against ourselves to get, oh, no, I only got a 57, but I actually woke up and felt really good. But now I'm going to have a bad day because I got a 57 percent as opposed to the other day when I got 76. Like, you know, does that kind of thing actually hinder the quality of our sleep? Um, I think, well, I think it depends on the person. I mean. Of course, the the information is interesting to know. I I tried using a Fitbit for a while, and I found that like personally, it gave me anxiety. Like if I didn't have, um, and yeah. you know, that's certainly a thing too. Anxiety about not sleeping well. And then, of course, when you go to sleep, you're you're anxious about not getting a good night's sleep, and then it's a self fulfilling exactly. prophecy and all that. Yeah. And its suggestions yeah. are terrible for sleep. Like sleep harder, <laughs> sleep better, fuck this. <laughs> Be more rested. <laughs> so while Dave was asking you about whoops, I, I, I rather rudely looked up the sleep spoon test because I know people are going to want to listen. Okay, go on, go on. And I don't want to waste your time, Jill. So while he was banging on there, I just looked it up. It was created by the late Dr. Nathaniel Kleitman from the University of Chicago. Basically, you lie down during the day, you have a spoon and you, in your hand and a metal tray underneath you, your hand. And if you fall asleep within five minutes, what happens is you drop the spoon, obviously, onto the metal tray and uh, you then look at your watch and see how long it took you to fall asleep. If it's five minutes, you're probably severely sleep deprived. Ten minutes, not so bad. And 15 minutes, you're not sleep deprived. Or if you're like me, it took eight seconds and you can go to sleep, wake up, go back to sleep again. Everything's fine. Super sleeper. That's what I'm calling myself. I, th <laughs> I, I think you're either part cat or just that's a general level of ennui. Like you're just tired of life. I think that's sort of bone weary, Dave. That's what yeah, that is. Possibly so. Um, Jill, let's get back to the, the history of sleep a little bit and let's go... Uh, into the Middle Ages. Okay, so we, when we, we, it's relatively modern in terms of where we are now, based on where we were before, back in Neolithic times. But didn't we have? Wasn't there a type of sleep called biphasic sleep, where people, whether on purpose or not, but I mean, society encouraged sleeping in two phases rather than one all the way through. Oh. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, that was definitely more prevalent around that time. Um, a lot of that was found through. Um, like written text talking about like two two rest periods uh, often after dusk for maybe a, a one to two hours get up you know walk around do something for an hour or two and then uh, go back to sleep you, you paint such a such a kind of an innocent picture of that Jill because I did a little bit of reading <laughs> on, on biphasic sleep and it was yes at dusk or so go for a few hours then it was wake up and it was things like go and have sex with your neighbor well okay maybe that was just the one study i wrote but it was like it was prayer it was cooking it was eating it was going to the bathroom it was dealing with the animals that you may have had whether it was horses or whatever then centaurs whatever was knocking about your stables but then also it was time for mating and other things but but it was a re it wasn't like a case of somebody which we might do now like wake up in the middle of the night and I'm awake for an hour. I might as well play words with friends on my phone for 40 minutes and then see if the bright light and the sum of, you know, humanity's intelligence staring at me in the face will send me back to sleep. Um, but but it was it was a genuine break in sleep where you would go and be active and be productive in that window. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it, it was more purposeful rather than just a insomnia issue. And so when did that kind of die out and we got this, the pattern that we have in, per, certainly in Western societies today, you go to bed and you sleep your eight or nine hours. <laughs> five, <laughs> maybe five. 
Oh yeah, I think I think we found the link here. Oh, I can sleep anywhere. I've such a talent. How long do you sleep at night, Dave? Five hours. All right, Dracula, Dave. Can you see the link? Oh, I don't know. I just can't get my coffin comfortable enough. There's something weird about it. So when did we move from the biphasic uh, types of sleep? Which I think uh, dogs sleep in in a phasic way. By the way, uh, they don't sleep in the same way way we do. When did that get to kind of what we would class as modern patterns of sleep? Yeah, so that started to kind of taper off more, like when she hit like the sixteen hundreds, but really became a thing around the industrial revolution, based on the the work schedules, the people, and of course um, the invention of electricity. People just couldn't, you know, take extra time to, to sleep um, and breaking that up. So they just did, you know, one full go at it with sleep. And so um, that's really when it became the norm and then moving into um, the 1900s and so on and like we do now. And is there such a thing as polyphasic sleep more than like having, you know, multiple phases rather than just the biphasic? Uh, yeah, so polyphasic sleep is just, you know, having more than two um, periods periods of rest. Um, you know, certainly some people, if they, you know, maybe take multiple naps throughout the day, you know, depending on their schedule or something, it's not, you know, of course, very, very common. Um, as you mentioned, like dogs are probably more polyphasic sleepers. But yeah, that that is a thing. And that would just mean that they're sleeping more than two times. Right, gotcha. And do we tend to sleep in kind of hour and a half cycles is it or is it longer than that you you know sometimes you get say okay dave nine hours of sleep can you imagine nine easy no you're a stand-up comedian and no reason to get up in the morning (laughs) no the angelus is my alarm clock (laughs) and that's the one at 6 6 p.m not the 12 (laughs) one it would take too long to explain the history of the angelus just ignore (laughs) that um uh, jill um you know, sometimes you get, say, okay, let's say eight hours of sleep and you wake up and you feel refreshed. And then sometimes you get actually a little, little bit longer, eight and a half, nine, and you feel wrecked. Is that because you are you are coming out at the wrong time of your sleep cycle? Yeah, that's, um, you have it exactly there. Um, so uh, in your sleep cycles, as we, like we had talked about earlier, you have uh, lighter stages of sleep and then deep sleep and REM sleep. And so if you're waking up in one of those later stages, you're more likely to feel groggy and, you know, not as well rested and everything. So um, that's more than likely the case is that you're waking up in the wrong time of a sleep cycle. And are they, how long are they roughly speaking? Is it 90 minutes or? About, yeah, about 90 minutes. You mentioned the migration of humans from, obviously, from the equatorial areas and we moved up into northern and southern regions. And, and things are very different in terms of the way daytime and nighttime happen. So, for example, I've lived in St. Petersburg in Russia for a year. So my summertime, I experienced the white nights of Russia, of St. Petersburg. So effectively, the sun does not set. So it stays light 24 hours a day for about a month. And then... Years later, when I got married, I went to the Maldives, right down at the equator for my honeymoon. And six o'clock, everything's like 5.59. It's, it's daytime. Six o'clock, it's dark. It's like dark. Immediately, the sun just goes, hey, how's it going? And it just disappears. And then it's like 6 a.m., boom, sun is back up. But it was so predictable and so immediate, that that kind of sunset scenario. Whereas, you know, what I experience in, in St. Petersburg and what people who live in further north even than that, you know, there's just there's such a different light scenario that surely that must affect how humans in different geographical regions sleep. Yeah, so um, light is actually a, a big part of sleep because it's part of your circadian rhythm. It's what um, essentially uh, controls it. So when when it's light out, that's telling your body that hey, it's t- it's time to be awake. And then when it's dark. That's when your body starts getting the sleep mode, produces more melatonin. So there's definitely a challenge there for for people when it's you know, you know light out, especially like later into the night, and you're on that kind of you know of course standard sleep schedule that they maybe have to you know, find find ways to keep their bedrooms darker, you know, blackout curtains or eye masks and things. So that can definitely um, affect sleep too, and and be a challenge. Yeah, with young kids and the summertime and you're just like, okay, it's eight o'clock. And they're like, 
all of my friends are outside playing. I can hear them and the, it's still as bright as it was at 12 o'clock. And you're like, yes, I know. But here come your blackout blinds and now it's time to go to sleep. So it's definitely a challenge in our part of the world, that's for sure. I know we're joking about my uh, my ability to sleep or whatever, but like, are there people who just need less sleep? I mean, I, I just like I've worked on morning radio for 20 something years. I've, my alarm has gone off at either started with a four or with a five pretty much most of my adult life. And yeah, sure, I'm tired. You know, as I said, I can sleep anytime, anywhere. I've got four kids. It's all it all adds up. But like, but I don't find myself, you know, negatively affected by that. Whereas if my wife had to do these hours, I think she would really struggle. She just needs more sleep than I do. Yeah. So um, in general, of course, you have like the eight hours recommended. And but some people maybe need just seven. It, it is a very individual thing. Some people might need closer to nine hours of sleep, you know, whether that's uh, all the time or <laughs> I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like that, too. I prefer more sleep. But some people, maybe they need just more sleep because they're sick or something. Um, they're trying to, like, get over a cold. But, um, yeah, it's it's very individual. Does it change throughout your life, like the, that stereotype of, of students and, and teenagers in particular, needing 10, 11, 12 hours of sleep and older people needing less sleep? Is that the case? It's absolutely true. Yeah. So um, when you are younger, you need more sleep because of physical growth, uh, brain growth. So that's why you have like, um, you know, a, a lot more time um, asleep as a, a baby and a child, teenager. And then as you get older, so older adults don't, don't need as much sleep uh, for that reason, because they're not growing if Dave works off five hours of sleep, is that suggesting that he his brain is, is done, uh, all neuroplasticity is finished, <laughs> any sort of growth uh, is over? Me and... not. Me not done. <laughs> brain go. <laughs> Me likey sleepy time. Time go night night now, my. Um, <laughs> so that would seem to suggest that anyway. Yeah, I mean, once you reach adulthood, and especially like... um you know like older older adults um yeah it's okay you can say i'm older it's okay you can say it jill well no no (laughs) i'm I'm suddenly remembering every sleep article (laughs) we're senior citizens (laughs) (laughs) i've ever read now and um uh i did read that when you deprive people of sleep what happens dave and you're not going to like this is Mm. they give them aptitude tests right say on say you need seven hours of sleep give them an aptitude test and then you give them six hours of sleep and give them an aptitude test and then give them six hours of sleep again and what happens is they think they're getting used to the six hours of sleep but actually their aptitude isn't getting any better it's that they they have convinced themselves that they are functioning as well on seven hours as i've convinced myself that between five and six hours sleep a night for my adult life is absolutely fine but really i'm just getting gradually dumber as the years go by no no uh no uh i would suggest that you were saying you exactly that's what you think i'm saying because you have not enough sleep Um, but you could be a different person on eight hours of sleep you might yeah, be nice I, right i might be sound and yeah and, and comfortable to be around uh, what's what does the future of sleep look like i mean you know can we bypass this annoying useless sack of meat that we have for a body and its need for rest or whatever and upload our consciousness to the cloud and just exist 24 7 that's what i'm waiting for as of now, I think we, we're still pretty set on, on needing sleep, but, um, you know, maybe maybe someday with the, you know, development and medicine technology, you know, who knows. But for now, I think we're still uh, dependent on it. <laughs> right. And then, you know, the way people talk in their sleep sometimes, and obviously that's in presumably the REM phase and they're dreaming and the words are coming out, whatever. Are there, I mean, there are documented cases of other things happening, like sleep texting is a thing, right? Sure it is, Dave, yeah. I just, I just sent Neil a really offensive text last night. I just want to give an excuse, Jill. Please help me out here. It would have been normal for someone to take a picture of their genitals and it because, <laughs> frankly, that is that is weird. Neil, Dave. that is between you and me. Let, let Jill answer the question. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> well, I, I, I hope that's not the case. <laughs> but um, that that is a thing with sleep texting is that sometimes people might send either just you know messages that that don't make sense or um maybe inappropriate or something but it's uh it's a parasomnia like uh talking in your sleep or, or sleepwalking uh, just means an, an abnormal behavior but yeah you're uh, essentially unconsciously sending texts in in your sleep 
um, you know, maybe you're stressed in the back of your mind, you're thinking about something and yeah. Because if you're stressed, you're usually stressed. You're going to text the person you're stressed about. And like, that's that's the danger. Sending your boss a, <laughs> a sleep-induced gobbledygook and, and then getting the message, you okay? I'm like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Has anybody studied how well Michael Stipe sleeps? Because I think <laughs> if he didn't sleep well, I mean, that would be one of the great ironies of life, wouldn't it? <laughs> if he was Neil. really angry. <laughs> All of the time. Uh, okay, Jill, like, thank you so much for educating us in the world of sleep. Uh, I feel like I'll probably still get my five to six hours a night and sleep whenever I can, wherever I can. But, you know, I feel more informed. And that, of course, is definitely the aim of why would you tell me that. So, uh, Jill Zwarnstein, thank you so much for joining us from L.A. Journalist, certified sleep coach and editor for Sleep Advisor. Go check out Sleep Advisor and find out all you need to know about sleep and get a better night's sleep. Thank you, Jill. Thanks, Jill. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Hello and welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Neil, do you feel rested or are you stressed and anxious about your night's sleep now tonight after talking to Jill? No, I, I am rested and enriched with knowledge. That biphasic thing in particular, I thought was very interesting. Very Never, interesting. I kind of just assumed, and even the three hours after dusk thing that, that hunter-gatherers still do now, and we're kind of extrapolating backwards to assume that we always did that. Um, That's very interesting as well. I kind of would have thought that it gets dark, we go to bed sort of mm, thing. But mm. um, no, chill was, was Yeah, great. and also that thing of being quiet around nocturnal predators, tying in part one. That, yeah. You know, man needing to be quiet. So hush, everyone. The best thing to do is just shut up and go to sleep. Like, Shh, there's an hard work licking ants out over there. So I, I think that slow Loris just licked its brachial gland. He's toxic, lads. <laughs> uh, right. Well, that was the history of sleep with Jill and uh, all the nocturnal animals. But that's me done for this week. Neil, it's your turn to wow us next week. What have you got for us? We have got a famous celebrity expert. Get out. Yes a neuroscientist and television star, and he's going to tell us which animal, the study of which has given us most Nobel Prizes. Oh, my God. I want to know all of the things. Who is it and what's the animal? Yeah. Okay. I'll have to have a think in the next week or so. Have a think. Right. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Dave. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.